Daniel chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank and three years of training for them so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Meshach, and Azariah. Abednego. Someone once told me that God has no point of view. That God only has points to view. And I saw the wisdom in that statement. God has no point of view. He only has points to view. God sees everything clearly. God has the vantage point of eternity. He knows the beginning from the end. The God of the Bible is the God who sees everything and everyone. He is the God who is completely sovereign. He is sovereign in history. He is sovereign in civilization. He is sovereign in the lives of individuals. And he is the sovereign down to the minutest detail. And the opening verses of Daniel will focus on the conquest of Jerusalem in chapter in verse one, a king's command, and then the selection of some choice candidates for the king's service. Now, again, a careful reading and understanding of the book of Daniel is going to provide many, many lessons for me and for you. And just so you know, I will not predict when the rapture will take place. But I will simply state that it will take place. I believe that the coming of Jesus is imminent. That means the coming of Jesus is the next great event that will take place on the prophetic calendar. There is a great imbalance among the students and even of teachers of prophecy. Some people seem committed to exploiting people's emotions and resources, of setting dates, of buying guns and gold and groceries and a farm in Montana. Instead of living godly and dedicating our lives to Jesus Christ. Now, we, I want, to under, want you to understand something about the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel is deeply rooted in history. And it's deeply rooted in prophecy. And because it's deeply rooted in both history and prophecy, we're going to address a lot of historical moments and prophetic moments. The book can broadly be broken down into two categories. The history 
of Daniel from chapters 1 through 6, and then the prophecies of Daniel in chapter 7 through 12. Someone once wisely said, quote, He who learns nothing from the past will be punished by the future. I think that that's true. A contemporary historian of the first rank, Paul Johnson, I don't know if you've read his books, but they're wonderful. He wrote, the study of history is a powerful antidote to contemporary arrogance. It is humbling to discover how many of our glib assumptions, which seem so novel and plausible, have been tested before, not once, but many times, and in innumerable guises, and discovered to be, at great human cost, wholly false, unquote. You see, the book of Daniel will present the entire history of humanity from two different perspectives. From two outstanding perspectives concerning faithfulness and the future, it will also present the perspective of man and the perspective of God. From God's perspective, all of human history from beginning to end can be broadly broken down into the events of the Messiah. Careful reading of the Bible, you'll discover that from Genesis and Adam and Eve, from the creation of the universe, the placement of our parents in the Garden of Eden, their rebellion and disobedience, all of human history from Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Judah and David, from Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel and Daniel has been pushing, pushing, pushing forward to the time when Jesus would be born. When he would live and when he would die and, and when he would rise from the dead. So all of history, quite literally, can be broken down into the things that take place before the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And then the things that take place after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And the second coming of Jesus Christ. And sometimes we lose sight of that most important issue because from God's perspective, American civilization, European civilization, Middle Eastern civilization, all of humanity is pushing, pushing, pushing towards that moment when Jesus Christ will physically, literally return to the planet Earth. If I were to further break up human history... It would be, again, broadly based into two categories. God's dealing with the Jewish people and God's dealing with the Gentile nations. And that's what Daniel is in part about. It might come as a shock to you. But God's primary concern in human history isn't the rise and fall of nations, but rather the rise and fall of nations as it pertains to the coming king, Jesus. As closely as you watch the upcoming political election, God's perspective isn't on whether or not John McCain or Barack Obama will be the next president of the United States. From God's perspective, it's what are the series of events that are pushing us closer and closer and closer to that encounter which the Bible has spoken of prophetically, forever, since it was written, the coming of Jesus Christ. All nations are judged by their willingness to submit and obey God 
or by their willingness to not submit and to disobey God. By the way, nothing is more important than Jesus. And nothing is more important than our response to Jesus. I know sometimes when you come to church, you think of worship as like the previews to a movie. We'll sing these songs until Gino comes up and teaches. And that's the main event. But nothing could be further from the truth. We worship the Lord. We sang earlier, all I want is Jesus. All I need is you. But some of you might have been uncomfortable saying those words. You might have been thinking, well, I, I need more than Jesus. I need a place to live, and I need food to eat, and I need a job, and I need a, a, a health, and I, I need some semblance of sanity in my marriage. I need my children to obey me, and I need the price of gas to go down. But all I want is Jesus. All I need is you. And a hybrid. Because so much of Daniel deals with biblical history and prophecy. Like I said, we're going to devote a lot of time to those subjects. However, it is history. And it's prophecy. Rooted and grounded in the glorious fact of Jesus Christ. In the end, Jesus is the golden key, if you will. Which unlocks the book the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. If you love Jesus, you will love the book of Daniel. Jesus is the great stone that comes down from heaven and smashes the kingdoms of the, of the world and establishes his own kingdom. Jesus is the ancient of days. Jesus is the fourth man in the fiery furnace. Jesus is the one who will shut the mouth of lions in chapter 6. It is the finger of Jesus perforating reality that will write on the wall many, many tekel you farsen in, in chapter 5. Much of the book of Daniel, when it was written by Daniel, was still future. Daniel's future has become our past. Yet there's still much of the prophecy that remains unfulfilled. Do you remember what Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 29? And now I have told you before it comes to pass that when it comes to pass, you might believe. In the New Testament, Jesus notes that prophecy, predictive prophecy, is one of those things that authenticate the reality of the origin of the words that you're reading and the message that is being given and that that message can be trusted. Prophecy has long been one of the outstanding proofs that the Bible is true. Remember, the book of Daniel is to the Old Testament what Revelation is to the New Testament. And prophetically, Daniel deals with what the Bible calls the times of the Gentiles. The times of the Gentiles is that period of time when Jerusalem is politically subject to the rule of Gentiles. It began with Nebuchadnezzar, and some scholars suggest that it will continue until the second coming of Jesus Christ. Other expressions are also used in the Scripture. 
The fullness of the Gentiles. The fullness of times. A clue is given to us in Luke chapter 21, verse 24, where it says Jesus is speaking. And he says, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. And so God really does look at the planet Earth in terms of his dealing with the Jews and his dealing with the Gentiles. And again, this might come as a shock to you. Daniel probably knew less about the future than you do right at this very moment. As a matter of fact, a careful reading of the book of Daniel, we discover several things. Number one, Daniel certainly knew about the rise of Gentile nations and kingdoms to power. He saw the reality of the Babylonian Empire, the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks and the Romans, and then a future, a future kingdom. He certainly was aware of the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the coming and the death of the Messiah, of the great tribulation and the millennial kingdom. So the first three have already occurred. And there are two that remain. The book of Daniel, for the non-Christian, is a very special message. For the non-Christian, the book of Daniel reiterates, even for the unbeliever, that God knows all of human history down to the last detail. You can accept it or reject it. It's your tough luck. For the non-Christian, God knows everything and everyone. For the Christian... God knows everything and everyone. And Jesus will rule and reign in glory and majesty. Now, as you can imagine, lots of ink have been spilt over the issue of the authenticity of the book of Daniel. Some critics suggested that Daniel is a late forgery. The problem? The entire Old Testament was translated into the Greek language under the reign of Ptolemy II in 250 B.C. You know what that means? That all of the things that we're going to be talking about in this book were clearly established two and a half centuries before the birth of Jesus. However, there is one thing that forever settles it in my mind. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, Jesus says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Jesus believed that Daniel wrote this book and that the prophecies were given by God. And he references this book. Here's the big question. If Jesus believed that Daniel wrote the book, and the book was true. Doesn't it seem odd to you that someone would go, but I don't believe it. Well, that's fine. Uh, Sam from Highlands Ranch. Jesus. Now we begin. Look at verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. 
Daniel was taken into captivity about 605 B.C. And for those of you who are a little bit nervous about time, remember in our modern calendar, this is the year 2008. Next year it will be 2009. When you get to the zero point, it becomes one, two, three, four, five, six. And so if you've got 605 B.C., when you start counting towards the coming of Jesus, which is going to be about 4 B.C., we're talking about 600 years before the birth of Jesus. Now, in the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim is also about the same time as Habakkuk wrote and prophesied to the southern kingdom. Although Daniel was a prophet, his primary job was as a government official, as an administrator. And the third year of Jehoiakim extended in the Jewish calendar to the month of Tishri in 605 B.C. And so there's some reason to believe that Daniel's captivity even predates the complete collapse of Jerusalem since Jeremiah chapter 46 verse 2 dates the event to the fourth year of Jehoiakim's reign. So scholars place the sacking of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar shortly after his victory at Carchemish. Now, that's a place in Egypt. Babylon is located in modern Iraq. The Babylonian Empire grew up around the, the Tigris and the Euphrates River. And so in the summer, in the early summer of 605, he goes and he invades Egypt and then he sees this plum Jerusalem. David or Daniel's service extended to the third year of Cyrus, which is 539 B.C. So, again, part of what I want you to understand, Daniel, in this opening chapter, is perhaps 13 years old or 14 years old when he is taken into captivity. As we march through the book of Daniel in his 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s, by the time we get to the familiar story of Daniel in the lion's den, he will have already been serving the Lord for over 60 years and will be a man probably in his 80s. And so again, it's just good to know. Many Gentile rulers had attempted to capture Jerusalem. But none had been successful until Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, his name means Nebo protects or Prince Nebo. Nebo was a major deity in the Babylonian pantheon of gods. Nebo, in their way of thinking, was the prince of gods. And in their pantheon, Nebo had all power over the element of fire. Now, this is going to play an important role as we dissect the book of Daniel. And you'll remember the story of the three Hebrew children that are thrown into the fiery furnace. Uh, there's a reason why it was fiery. It's because Nebuchadnezzar and his pride and his insolence fancied himself as, as the ruler, the controller, and the, the patron saint, if you will, of the gods of fire. Babylon and Jerusalem represent the two cities to which human beings belong. 
As a matter of fact, Babylon will become a type and a picture of the world and particularly the religious world and the political world and the cultural world. So in the Bible way of thinking, Babylon always stands in opposition to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the city of God and Babylon is the city of humanity that stands in opposition to God. And so we see that they symbolize two loyalties, which Scripture speaks about in many different word pictures. In the New Testament, the Bible talks about two gates, and it talks about two ways and two masters. And as Babylon and Jerusalem are permanently opposed to one another, they become that type and that picture. The invitation, if you will, to choosing the way of God or or rejecting the way of God. And in verse 2 it says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Jehoiakim means the Lord will establish or the Lord will set this up. And certainly the Lord will establish both a cross and a crown for God's Messiah, even though they're going to the land of Shinar, which is Babel, which is found in Genesis chapter 10, verse 10. And the treasure house was the place where the treasure was stored. So the articles in the temple owned by God would have been captured. The golden menorah, the golden laver, the golden altar, all of the treasures and the altars and, the, and the, the important things in the temple would have been captured and taken away. But you've got to understand something. In their way of thinking, this was a fight against the gods of Babel and the great god of Jerusalem. And so in their wicked and weird way of thinking, it was the gods of Babylon have overthrown the great god of Judah and the great god of Jerusalem. But we know that's not true. Remember what Daniel says in verse, chapter 1, verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. What? For those of you who have been studying along with me in the book of Isaiah, over and over again, Isaiah prophesied, your rebellion and your disobedience is going to catch up with you. There's going to come a king out of the east, from the Euphrates, from Babylon. Jeremiah and Ezekiel predicted it over and over again. Repent, turn from your sin, turn from your wicked ways, turn from your sin, turn from your wicked ways. And they didn't. Did God know that the king of Babylon was going to come to Jerusalem and take Jerusalem? The answer is yes. Does God know every detail of your heart and of your life and of your circumstances? Does God know the problems and the issues and the challenges that you face? The answer is yes. The destruction of the city didn't catch God unaware. And the turmoil in your life also didn't catch God unaware. But you can imagine... When Judah is destroyed and the temple is destroyed and the articles are taken and the children are gathered together and they're taken captive, the whole world is different. And they must have been thinking, what's going on? Has God forgotten his people? Has God forgotten the promises to them in their greatest hour of need? 
We know in the reign of Hezekiah, the Lord had already prophesied in Isaiah chapter 39, verses 6 and 7. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. God saw it coming all along. That's the power of predictive prophecy. The scripture certainly contains prophecy. Do you realize that one third of the Bible has a predictive element? And that's certainly way beyond in, in, in Daniel. God's ultimate end in allowing the destruction of Jerusalem wasn't limited to God's judgment. Now, sometimes we see that. We see The devastation that takes place, yes, God is going to judge, but guess what else? God is going to show mercy. Babylon was the place that God would reveal a selfish king's dream about humanity's future, but he would also place Daniel there with visions, and Daniel will exercise faithfulness in the most wicked and godless society imaginable. And Daniel would would do what escapes so much of us in the most wicked and perverse and rebellious society you know what Daniel will do? He will live a life of faithfulness and submission to the true and the living God. He will live a life that shines. He will stand in the midst of a generation that completely sets itself in opposition to God. Think about it. He's going to remain faithful. Paul would repeat that principle in the New Testament when he is in prison. Remember in Philippians chapter 1, verse 12, where he writes, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Have you ever had a situation in your life that seemed so weird and so wicked and so wrong but God was moving God was working God was going to accomplish his plans and purposes look at the sovereign's command in Daniel chapter 1 verse 3 it says then the king instructed Ashpenaz the master of his eunuchs to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles. What does that tell us? Daniel was apparently of royal descent. Daniel was one of those young men who grew up in a palace with all of the luxuries and all of the things that go along with royal descent. He's the son of a king or the son of a prince, but as the son of a king, now he's been reduced to slavery. Isn't that the very definition of sin? Sin will turn a prince into a pauper. Sin and rebellion will completely change everything. And by the way, these children are suffering because of the rebellion and the disobedience of their parents. In verse 4 it says, Young men in whom there is no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who have the ability to serve in the king's palace whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. Now think about what the king is doing. He wants only the cream of the crop. 
you'd think that he's auditioning for a Babylonian reality TV show. Look, here's what I want. I want teenagers. I want them to be young and I want them to be beautiful. I don't want them to have any physical defects. I want them to be have outstanding intelligence. I want them to have superior learning abilities. I want them to have the ability to learn new languages. But make no mistake, the king is looking to take the cream of Judah's leadership and transform them into men who will talk and walk and look like Babylonians. Make no mistake that this is a total and complete socialization transformation. This is brainwashing. And because it's brainwashing and complete indoctrination, Nebuchadnezzar's vision and dream isn't simply to subjugate all people, but to subjugate them in such a way that they can fulfill his plans and his purposes. Doesn't that sound familiar to you? Doesn't that sound exactly like the king of this world? But you're going to see something else. That the evil, wicked of Nebuchadnezzar is amazing because the point is to transform and create a whole new generation with a Babylonian worldview. Sin certainly isn't restrained by wealth or intelligence or education. Let me ask you kind of a hard question. Are the wealthiest people you know the least likely to sin? Are the intelligent people that you know the least likely to sin? Are the educated people that you know the least likely to sin? Does wealth, intelligence, or education produce holiness? Go ahead, you can tell me. Pretend it's a Pentecostal church. Talk to me a little bit. Yeah, the answer can't be. The answer is no. Some of my best friends who are wealthy, intelligent, and educated are the vilest of sinners. And by the way, every bureau agent knows that intelligence coupled with evil is a formidable enemy. By the way, when the bureau is doing a profile on someone who's been brainwashed, you know what the protocol that they look for is? The person who wants to brainwash someone, you know what they do? They, first of all, they isolate them. The second thing that they do is they indoctrinate them. The third thing that they do is they initiate little compromises in life. Doesn't that sound familiar to you? That's exactly what is happening here. Nebuchadnezzar is going to isolate these teenagers. Then he's going to indoctrinate these teenagers. And then he's going to ask them. For a little bit of a compromise, look at verse 5. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank. And three years of training for them so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Do you understand what's happening? These children of Judah and Israel are given a full scholarship to BIT, the Babylonian Institute of Technology where they will learn all of the advanced technologies, including Akkadian agriculture, including um, astronomy and astrology, including math. And, of course, one of the most difficult languages in all the world is the Akkadian language. But what's interesting also is that the vast ancient libraries were stored in Babylon. Do you realize that every legend, every omen, 
every remembrance that came out of the ancient past of humanity wound up in the library at Babylon, and Daniel had access to it. It was in Babylon that people first learned how to calculate eclipses and watch the stages of the moon. It was in Babylon that they established times and seasons and calendars as they kept a close watch on heaven. And these young men didn't simply eat in the school cafeteria. They're called to eat at the king's table. Now, again, most college students have to eat hot pockets and top ramen. But we have to understand something about these meals. One great Bible commentator, Leupold, writes, and I quote, All meals served at the king's table were feasts, and among the heathen feasts were feasts in honor of the gods. To share in such a feast was the equivalent of honoring such an idol, admitting his claims and his existence, and so practically denying the one true God. In other words, the food and the drink weren't simply perks of the job of sitting in the king's palace They existed to try to undermine their convictions and to get them to deny the God of the Bible. Now again, think about that demonic wisdom. The leaders of Babylon are committed to replacing the boys' deeply held Jewish values for Babylonian values. The boys are taken from everything that they once knew. They're separated from their family. They're separated from their family's influence. They're separated from the temple. They're probably not given access to the sacred writings or the Torah, or at least limited. Perhaps they all had memorized the Bible as a child. The historian Josephus suggests that the Babylonians made them eunuchs, which may or may not be true. But if it is true, it explains to us why Daniel remained unmarried his whole life. The king of Babylon, again, uses several different tactics to break the will and to transform their lives, isolate them, cut them off from the spiritual influences that remain in their life, cut them off from their family, cut them off from their friends, cut them off from the people who share their view of God and the Bible, cut them off from the teaching of the Word of God, cut them off from public worship, cut them off from whatever memory they had of Jerusalem, indoctrinate them, brainwash them. Now, by the way, is there value in learning a foreign language? Yeah. Is there value in learning foreign customs? Yeah. Is there value in learning foreign thoughts and foreign traditions? Yeah. But remember, all of these things were meant to break down their will and then to offer a compromise. Food offered to idols which becomes a huge problem in the New Testament. Now, most of us have zero idea of the meaning of what it meant to have food offered to idols. I've, I've repeated this in the book of Isaiah, that in the ancient world, when you would worship a foreign god and you would offer a sacrifice to a foreign god, you know what you would do? You would worship and you would pray and you would cry out to this god and you would invite the god to inhabit the chicken, the goat, the bull. You would invite the God to inhabit the chicken, the bull, and the goat. Then you would slice the bull's throat, kill the chicken, slay whatever animal it was. Then you would cook it, and you would eat it. And when you were eating it, you were partaking of the God in their way of thinking. Now imagine if you went to Safeways or King Supers, and you saw in the meat department offered to Molech. 
you go, mm, I think I'm going to pass on this one. I think demonically possessed shrimp or meat, you know, that's just not who I am. Now, again, remember Paul argues, do the demons really inhabit the meat? And when you ingest the meat, does that mean that you're ingesting the God? No, but symbolically you are. Easy living versus hard living. That's what was before them. Discipline versus undisciplined. Here's the choice before them. Good life or hard life? Focus on the Lord or enjoyment? I mean, you know, what's wrong with a few guilty pleasures? But the change was meant to get Daniel to think differently about himself. The whole point of this process was to get him to change. Now, remember, remember, remember. Can Daniel be held responsible for the fact that he's a captive? No. Can he be held responsible for the fact that he lives in a totalitarian society? No. Is he living in circumstances that are at best very difficult? The answer is yes. But it's interesting that Daniel doesn't relate any apologetic against the polytheistic world or the Babylonian cosmology or intellectual arguments against faith and trust in the Old Testament documents, the attack is far more subtle. Like I said, what the king has done is he's isolating these children, indoctrinating these children, and then soliciting the children to compromise. Doesn't that sound familiar to you? Isn't that exactly what's taking place in our own world? Isn't that exactly what, in part, the public education system does? That it solicits our children to be good citizens in the socialization process, all the while embracing a worldview that is antithetical to the Word of God. There's no real God. Creation is a myth. Evolution is true. And the Bible is not true. Thank God, thank God, thank God, thank God, thank God. God for every Christian man and every Christian woman. Thank God for every Christian man and Christian woman hiding out in the public school system. Thank God for every Christian man and every Christian woman and every teacher who subtly is there like leaven undermining that Reminding them that they are God's creation, known and loved by God. One of the antidotes to isolation and indoctrination and compromise, guess what it is? It's fellowship and teaching the word of God and commitment to godliness. You hear me say over and over and over again, join a small group. You hear me say over and over and over again, make sure that your social contact out there isn't limited to church on Sunday and, and Wednesday. Make sure that you're forming friendships and relationships with people who are God-honoring people who love the Lord and who love God's Word. Because guess what? If you isolate yourself from the people of God, do you become a target? The answer is yes. If you isolate yourself from the people of God and then your only source of information is ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox News. Don't you think that you're going through some sort of subtle mind indoctrination process? 
Once again, we're here to remind you that we have a medical breakthrough, that we're right on the precipice of finding the elixir of eternal life. We're going to cut your head off and then cryogenically freeze it to preserve your brain in order to give you at least the hope that you might have eternal life. And of course, you're smart. You went to school. Well, wait, won't cutting my head off pretty much kill me? Yeah. If we have the technology to preserve your brain and bring your brain back to life after you're already dead, that's the hope. That we'll also find a technology that will bring you back to life. That's pretty much bogus, isn't it? You know what's interesting, though? The Bible offers the hope of a resurrection. Isolation. Indoctrination. Compromise. And as they heard their names, their new names, day after day, it would be easier for them to think of themselves as Babylonians. I'm just going to skip ahead to verse 7 just very quickly. To them, the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Now, remember what I told you about isolation, indoctrination. What's the third one? Compromise. Now we have a fourth one. Confusion. In other words, do you, do you understand the sinister circumstances that are taking place as they change their names? They want them to completely dissociate from everything that they are as Jews. To forget the temple. To forget their upbringing. To forget everything that they were and everything that they are. You used to be a prince, but you're no longer a prince. You used to be the son of a king, but you're no longer the son of, of a king. You know what you are. You're a Babylonian citizen. What could be a better illustration of a tried and true principle? Anything that reminds them of their origin, anything that reminds them of their destiny, anything that will link them to their sacred past, anything that will link them to their commitment to God, anything that will link them to the Bible, they've got to get rid of it. Prayer. Commandments. The beginning of our nation. Freedom. Anything that will connect you to belief in the Bible and the promises of the Bible and the prophecies of the Bible, get rid of it. Do you, know what's under, do you understand what's happening? There's a principle here. And the principle is still true. That if I can get you to think like a Babylonian... And if I can get you to dress like a Babylonian, and if I can get you to talk like a Babylonian, and if I can get you, contrary to the 80s song, walk like an Egyptian, walk like a Babylonian, then we've made the successful transition. By the way, what you think about God and what you think about the Bible and the way that you think about yourself and the way that you think about the world in which you live 
the way that you live with God, the way that you think about what others are thinking, and the way that you think about this world will, for the most part, determine how you will live and how you will speak and how you will act. The secret of living for God faithfully today begins with remembering what it means to think like a Christian. To think thoughts about the Bible. You know what is one of the most amazing things to me? Isn't just simply how little of the world embraces a biblical worldview, that doesn't concern me or that doesn't bother me. What really bothers me is how few Christians have a biblical worldview. As a matter of fact, James Sire in The Universe Next Door, he writes, a worldview is a set of presuppositions, assumptions which may be true or partially true or entirely false, which we hold consciously or subconsciously, consistently or inconsistently about the basic makeup of the world. Leland Riken in Culture and Christian Perspective says, a worldview is a map of reality. It's the framework of belief and value and image within the person, how they make decisions and how they conduct themselves in the business of living. Alvin Toffler in his great book, Future Shock, wrote, Every person carries within his head a mental model of the world, a subjective representation of reality. No wonder Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Don't be conformed to this world, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Whether you know it or not, your worldview influences the decisions that you make in life. Whether you go, Where you're going to go to church, even if you are going to go to church, if you're going to go surfing instead, what you're going to focus on and what's going to be important to you. But remember, that's the plan of the world. If the plan of the world can be to isolate you and then indoctrinate you and then get you to compromise, guess what? They've succeeded. There's enormous pressure. There's never been more pressure, particularly to a generation of Christians who are more likely than ever to reject a biblical worldview and accept an unbiblical worldview. And so in verse 6, Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel... Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. Can you hear the can you hear the microphone? Who's going to be the next Chaldean Babylonian idol? That's it. In verse seven, they're hoping that the confusion is complete. The Hebrew children, with their names gone. And their new identity consistent with the Babylonian God and the Babylonian culture. One of the things that I just want you to do, I just want you just to imagine just for a moment. I want you to think. I just want you to think about what you're reading just for a moment. Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, they're probably 13 or 14 years old. 
They're 13 or 14 years old. Imagine middle schoolers removed from their families, forced to take graduate-level courses at a strange university in a foreign language, inundated with a pagan worldview and philosophy. They don't get to go home. They're not allowed to go home for spring break. They don't get to go home for summer vacation. Sound familiar? Does this sound familiar? Daniel will be challenged at every turn to reject his Jewish roots and to embrace the Babylonian worldview. So how is he going to keep his conscience clean? How is he going to avoid compromise? How are the polluted courts of a corrupt society going to influence him? I want you to know something, that Daniel and his friends will elect to remain pure. And the way that they will elect to remain pure is to understand the tactics and the scheme of the enemy and take control what they do have control over. By the way, do you know what the name Daniel means? The Lord is my judge. You know, it means so much more than the Lord is my judge. It means only God has the right to judge me. And I will not be judged by any human being. By the way, Daniel knew that his name meant representative on the earth. Daniel was going to be God's voice and God's choice representative. But Nebuchadnezzar is going to make a vain attempt to wipe out the name of God and the remembrance of Jehovah. By the way, not once does God or the Holy Spirit or the angels or the prophet himself use the name given by Nebuchadnezzar in order to tie him to the Babylonian deities. Satan will try to distance the children of Judea from their Lord and their God. By the way, Hananiah means Beloved of Jehovah. Mishael means who is like God. Azariah means Jehovah is my help. There's a sermon in every name. God is my judge, not man. The grace of God is is more than sufficient for every need and for every emergency. Holiness or God-likeness or godliness. Help is near, ever near. God is at hand. Their names, in times of testing, in times of trial, in times of darkness, in times of distress, in times of sorrow, in times of sickness. God will be an ever-present help in time of need. And by the way, distress and sorrow and trial is just around the corner. Daniel can't help it that he's a captive. Daniel can't help the fact that the Babylonians will attempt to change his name. Daniel can't change his circumstance, and he can't change the circumstance of his companions. But you know what he can change? And you know what he still has control over? His thoughts. His words. And the ability to challenge the little compromises that will be placed in front of him. 
Daniel was determined to be true to God, no matter what the cost and no matter what the consequences. You know what's interesting? Adam and Eve failed in eating the forbidden fruit. But Daniel's war to retain his identity with the God of the Bible meant that he was going to hold on to the revelation of God and the word of God in the matter of keeping clean and observing kosher. I read an interesting article this week. Some of you may have heard of it. A school bus driver, an amateur artist from the Chicago suburb of Zion, legally changed his name to In God We Trust. A Lake County Circuit judge approved Stephen Crocher's name change on Friday. The 57-year-old's first name was changed In God. His last name, We Trust. When he was asked why he did that, he said, because when people hear my name, I'm hoping that they will be reminded to trust in God. You guys know what my name means, Gino. Remember, I've told you many times, the cattle have died. This is a cruel thing to name a child. But thank God, God's given each and every one of us a new name. Do you realize in the book of Revelation, the Bible says that at the coming of Jesus, he will be given a new name? But that's for next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, when we see the tactics of the enemy, isolation, compromise, confusion. Lord, we know that things haven't changed all that much. Lord, we know that we live in a world that is constantly trying to remind us that we can't trust the Bible, we can't believe God, we can't honor God. It's just not possible. Lord, we pray that we would hold on like Daniel to those things that we do have control over. Our thoughts. Our identity. Our commitment to you. Heavenly Father, we pray that we wouldn't allow ourselves to be isolated. Cut off from the body of Christ. That we wouldn't allow ourselves to be indoctrinated by a wicked world that only wants to see us rot in hell. And that, Lord, we don't want to compromise because it effectively neutralizes our testimony to a world that desperately needs to know you. Lord, we pray that we would not be confused, but that we would name the name of Jesus and that we would honor the name that you've given to us. Christian. Disciple. Follower of Jesus. Lord, we pray that we would be true to that name and that we would remind ourselves that we are not what the world thinks we are we are what we think we are Lord I pray that our thoughts would be towards you committed to you, grounded in you that we would understand and embrace the promises of God 
and that all of human history is moving towards this one great moment the coming of Jesus the life of Jesus the death of Jesus the resurrection of Jesus Lord we pray that you would help us in our study of this book that we would not be content to just simply know more about prophecy and know more about history but that Lord we would like Daniel stand faithful in a world that hates you and Lord I pray for that person who's here this evening their heart is empty and dry Lord I pray that you would fill them and that you would wash them Lord I pray that you would extend to them hope and compassion Lord, I pray that you would remind them of your great love and commitment to them and that you are willing to walk with them into the future, the future known by Jesus. In Jesus' name.